Chapter 8 of Europe in the Middle Ages by Ierna Lifford Plunkett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 Charlemagne. Just before his death, Pepin the Short had divided his lands between his two sons, Charles, who was about twenty six, and Carloman, a youth some years younger. As they had no affection for each other, this division did not work well. Carloman gave little promise of statesmanlike qualities. He was peevish and jealous and easily persuaded by the nobles who surrounded him that his elder brother was a rival who intended to rob him of his possessions, it might be, of his life. There seems to have been no ground for this suspicion, but nevertheless he spent his days in trying to hinder whatever schemes Charles proposed, and when he died three years later, there was a general breath of relief. Enumerating the blessings that heaven had bestowed on Charlemagne, a monk writing to the king about this time, completed his list with a candid statement, the fifth, and not least, that God has removed your brother from this earthly kingdom. Charlemagne was exactly the kind of person to seize the fancy of the early Middle Ages. Tall and well-built, with an eagle nose and eyes that flashed like a lion when he was angry, so that none dared to meet their gaze, he excelled all his court in strength, energy, and skill. He could straighten out with his fingers four horseshoes locked together, lift a warrior fully equipped for battle to the level of his shoulder, and fell a horse and its rider with a single blow. It was his delight to keep up old national customs and to wear the Frankish dress with its linen tunic, cross-guarded leggings, and long mantle reaching to the feet. What is the use of these rags, he once inquired contemptuously of his courtiers, pointing to their short cloaks. Will they cover me in bed or shield me from the wind and rain when I ride abroad? This criticism was characteristic of the king. Intent on a multitude of schemes for the extension or improvement of his lands, and so eager to realize him that he would start on fresh ones when still heavily encumbered with the old, he was yet, for all his enthusiasm, no vague dreamer, but a level-headed man looking questions in the face and demanding a practical answer. By the irony of fate, it is the least practical and most important task he undertook that has made his name world-famous. For the story of Charlemagne and his paladins, told in the greatest of medieval epics, the Chanson de Roland, exceeds today in popularity even the exploits of Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. This much is history, that Charlemagne, invited secretly by some discontented demurs to evade Spain and attack the Caliph of Cordova, crossed the Pyrenees, and, after reducing several towns successfully, was forced to retreat. On his way back across the mountains, his rearguard was cut off by Gascon mountaineers and slaughtered almost to a man, while he and the rest of his army escaped with difficulty. On this meager and rather inglorious foundation, poets of the 11th century based a cycle of romance. Charlemagne is the central figure, but round him are grouped numerous paladins or famous knights, including the inseparable friends Oliver and Roland, warden of the Breton marches. After numerous deeds of glory in the land of Spain, 
the king it was said was forced by treachery to turn back towards the french mountains and he had already passed the summits when roland in charge of the rear guard found himself entrapped in the pass of Roncevaux by a large force of gascons his horn was slung at his side but he disdained to summon help from those in the van and drawing his good sword durenda laid about him valiantly the gascons fell back dismayed by the vigorous resistance of the french but thirty thousand saracens came to their aid and the odds were now overwhelming oliver lay dead and covered with wounds roland fell to the ground also but first of all he broke durenda in half that none save he might use this peerless blade putting his horn to his lips with his dying breath he sounded a blast that was heard by charlemagne in his camp more than eight miles away surely that is the horn of roland cried the king uneasily but treacherous courtiers explained away the sound and it was not till a breathless messenger came with the news of the reverse that he hastened toward the scene of the battle there in the pass stretched on the ground amid the heaped-up bodies of their enemies he found his paladins roland with his arms spread in the form of a cross his broken sword beside him and seeing him the king fell on his knees weeping o right arm of thy sovereign's body honor of the franks sword of justice why did i leave thee here to perish how can i behold you dead and not die with thee at last restraining his grief charlemagne gathered his forces together and the very sun we are told stood still to watch his terrible vengeance on gascons and saracens for the slaughter of christians at roncevaux the chanson de roland is one of the masterpieces of french literature it is not history but in its fiction lies the substantial germ of truth charlemagne in the early ninth century was what poets described him more than two hundred years later the central figure in christendom the recognized champion of the cross whether against mohammedans or pagans through your prosperity wrote alcuin an anglo-saxon monk and scholar who lived at his court christendom is preserved the catholic faith defended the law of justice made known to all men when the popes sought help against the lombards it was to charlemagne as to his father pepin that they naturally turned charlemagne had hoped at the beginning of his reign to maintain a friendship with king didier of lombardy and had even married his daughter an alliance that roused the pope of that date to demand in somewhat violent language do you not know that all children of the lombards are lepers that the race is outcast from the family of nations for these there is neither part nor lot in the heavenly kingdom may they broil with the devil and his angels in everlasting fire charlemagne went his own way in spite of the papal denunciations but he soon tired of his bride who was plain and feeble in health and divorced her that he might marry a beautiful german princess this was of course a direct insult to king didier who henceforth regarded the frankish king as his enemy and rome took care that the gulf once made between the sovereigns should not be bridged in papal eyes the lombards had really become accursed it is true that they had been since the days of gregory the great orthodox catholics that their churches were some of the most beautiful in italy 
their monasteries the most famous for learning, and Pavia, their capital, a center for students and men of letters. Their sin did not lie in heretical views, but in the position of their kingdom that now included not only modern Lombardy in the north, but also the Duchy of Spoletum in South Italy. Between stretched the papal dominions like a broad wall from Ravenna to the western Mediterranean, and on either side the Lombards chafed, trying to annex a piece of land here or a city there, while the popes watched them, lynx-eyed, eager on their part to dispossess such dangerous neighbors, but unable to do so without assistance from beyond the Alps. Soon after the death of his younger brother, Charlemagne was persuaded to take up the papal cause and invade Italy. At Geneva, where he held the Mayfield or annual military review of his troops, he laid the object of his campaign before them and was answered by their shouts of approval. It was a formidable host, for the Franks expected every man who owned land in their dominions to appear at these gatherings prepared for war. The rich would be mounted, protected by mail shirts and iron headpieces and armed with sword and dagger. The poor would come on foot, some with bows and arrows, others with lance and shield, and the humblest of all with merely scythes or wooden clubs. Tenants on the royal domains must bring with them all the freemen on their estates, and while it was possible to obtain exemption, the fine demanded was so heavy that few could pay it. When the army set out in battle array, it was accompanied by numerous baggage carts, lumbering wagons covered with leather awnings that contained enough food for three months, as well as extra clothes and weapons. It was the general hope that on the return journey the wagons would be filled to overflowing with the spoils of the conquered enemy. The Lombards had ceased, with the growth of luxury and comfortable town life, to be warriors like the Franks, and Charlemagne met with almost as little resistance as Pepin in past campaigns. After a vain attempt to hold the western passes of the Alps, Didier and his army fled to Pavia, where they fortified themselves leaving the rest of the country at the mercy of the invaders. Frankish chroniclers in later years drew a realistic picture of Didier, crouching in one of the high towers of the city, awaiting in trembling suspense the coming of the terrible Charles. Beside him stood Otger, a Frankish duke, who had been a follower of the dead Carloman and was therefore hostile to his elder brother. Is Charles in that great host? demanded the king continually, as first a long line of baggage wagons came winding across the plain, and then an army of the common folk, and after them the bishops with their train of abbots and clerks. Every time his companion answered him, No, not yet. Then Didier hated the light of day. He stammered and sobbed and said, Let us go down and hide in the earth from so terrible a foe and Otger, too, was afraid. Well, he knew the might and wrath of the peerless Charles. In his better days he had often been at court, and he said, When you see the plain bristle with harvest of spears and rivers of black steel come pouring in on your city walls, then you may look for the coming of Charles. While he yet spoke, a black cloud arose in the west, and the glorious daylight was turned to darkness. The emperor came on, a dawn of spears darker than night rose on the beleaguered city. King Charles, that man of iron, appeared. Iron his helmet, iron his arm guards, iron the corselet on his breast and shoulders. 
his left hand grasped an iron lance iron the spirit iron the hue of his war steed before behind and at his side rode men arrayed in the same guise iron filled the plain and open spaces iron points flashed back the sunlight there is the man whom you would see said otger to the king and so saying he swooned away like one dead in spite of this picture of carolingian might it took the franks six months to reduce pavia and then didier at last surrendering was sent to a monastery while charlemagne proclaimed himself king of the newly acquired territories during the siege leaving capable generals to conduct it he himself had gone to rome where he was received with feasting and joy crowds of citizens came out of the gates to welcome him carrying palms and olive branches and hailing him as patrician and defender of the church dismounting from his horse he passed on foot through the streets of rome to the cathedral and there in the manner of the ordinary pilgrim climbed the steps on his knees until the pope awaiting him at the top raised and embraced him from the choir arose the exultant shout blessed is he that cometh in the name of the lord a few days later once more standing in st peter's charlemagne affixed his seal to the donation pepin had given to the church the document was entered amongst the papal archives but it has long since disappeared and with it the exact information as to the territories concerned about this time the papal court produced another document the so-called donation of constantine in which the first of the christian emperors apparently granted to the popes the western half of the roman empire centuries later this was proved to be a forgery but for a long while people accepted it as genuine and the power of the popes was greatly increased we do not know how much charles believed in papal supremacy in temporal matters but throughout his reign his attitude to the pope over italian affairs was rather that of master to servant than the reverse it was only when spiritual questions were under discussion that he was prepared to yield as if to a higher authority when he had reduced pavia charlemagne left lombardy to be ruled by one of his sons and returned to france but it was not very long before he was called back to italy as fresh trouble had arisen there the cause was the unpopularity of pope leo the third in rome and the surrounding country where turbulent nobles rebelled as often as they could against the papal government one day as leo was riding through the city at the head of a religious procession a band of armed men rushed out from a side street separated him from his attendants dragged him from his horse and beat him mercilessly leaving him half dead it was even said that they put out his eyes and cut off his tongue but that these were later restored by a miracle leo at any rate whole though shaken succeeded in reaching charlemagne's presence and the king was faced by the problem of going to rome to restore order had it been merely a matter of exacting vengeance he would have found little difficulty with his army of stalwart franks behind him but leo's enemies were not slow in bringing forward accusations against their victim that they claimed justified their assault charlemagne was thus in an awkward position for he was too honest a ruler to refuse to hear both sides and his respect for the papal office could not blind him to the possibility of evil in the acts of the person who held it 
especially in the case of an ambitious statesman like Leo III. He felt that it was his duty to sift the matter to the bottom. And yet, by what law could the king of France, or even of Italy, put Christ's vice-regent upon his trial and cross-examine him? One way of dealing with this problem would have been to seek judgment at Constantinople as the seat of empire, a final appeal unto Caesar, such as St. Paul had made in classical times. But ever since Pepin the Short had given the exarchate of Ravenna to the Pope, instead of restoring it to the Byzantine emperors, relations with the East, never cordial, had grown more strained. Now they were at a breaking point. The late emperor, a mere boy, had been thrown into a dungeon and blinded by his mother, the Empress Irene, in order that she might usurp his throne. And the Western Empire recoiled from the idea of accepting such a woman as arbiter of their destinies. Thus, Charlemagne, forced to act on his own responsibility, examined the evidence laid before him and declared Leo innocent of the crimes of which he had been accused. In one sense, it was a complete triumph for the Pope. But Leo was a clear-sighted statesman and knew that the power to which he had been restored rested on a weak foundation. The very fact that he had been compelled to appeal for justice to a temporal sovereign lowered the office that he held in the eyes of the world, and he possessed no guarantee that, once the Franks had left Rome, his enemies would not again attack him. Without a recognized champion, always ready to enforce her will, the papacy remained at the mercy of those who chose to oppose or hinder her. In the dramatic scene that took place in St. Peter's Cathedral on Christmas Day, A.D. 800, Leo found a way out of his difficulties. Arrayed in glorious vestments, he said mass before the high altar, lit by a thousand candles hanging at the arched entrance to the chancel. In the half-gloom beyond knelt Charlemagne and his sons, and at the end of the service, Leo, approaching them with a golden crown in his hands, placed it upon the king's head. Instantly, the congregation burst into the cry with which Roman emperors of old had been acclaimed at their accession. To Charles Augustus, crowned of God, the great and pacific emperor, long life and victory. From that time, says a Frankish chronicle, commenting on the scene, there was no more a Roman Empire at Constantinople. Leo had found his champion, and in anointing and crowning him, had emphasized the dignity of his own office. He had also pleased the citizens of Rome, who rejoiced to have an emperor again after the lapse of more than three centuries. Charlemagne alone was doubtful of the greatness that had been thrust upon him, and he accepted it with reluctance. He had troubles enough near home without embroiling himself with Constantinople. But, as it turned out, the Eastern Empire was too busy deposing the Empress Irene to object actively to its rejection in the West, and Irene's successors agreed to acknowledge the imperial rank of their rival in return for the cession of certain coveted lands on the Eastern Adriatic. Other sovereigns hastened to pay their respects to the new emperor. Charlemagne received several embassies in search of alliance from Harun al-Rashid, the Caliph of Baghdad. Harun al-Rashid ruled over a mighty empire stretching from Persia to Egypt and thence along North African coast to the Strait of Gibraltar. 
On one occasion he sent Charlemagne a present of a wonderful water clock that, as it struck the hour of twelve, opened as many windows through which armed horsemen rode forth and back again. Far more exciting in western eyes was the unhappy elephant that for nine years remained the glory of the imperial court at Aachen. Its death, when they were about to lead it forth on an expedition against the northern tribes of Germany, is noted sadly in the national annals. Rulers less fortunate than Harun al-Rashid sought not so much the friendship of the western emperor as his protection, and through his influence exiled kings of Wessex and Northumberland were able to recover their thrones. The most significant tribute of all to the honor in which Charlemagne's name was held was the petition of the Patriarch of Jerusalem that he would come and rescue Christ's city from the infidel. The message was accompanied by a banner and the keys of the Holy Sepulchre. But Charlemagne, though deeply moved by such a call to the defense of Christendom, knew that the campaign was beyond his power and put it from him. Were there not infidels to be subdued within the boundaries of his own empire, fierce Saxon tribes that year after year made mock both of the sovereignty of the Franks and of their religion? The Saxons lived amongst the range of low hills between the Rhine and the Elba. By the end of the 8th century, when other Teutonic races such as the Franks and the Bavarians had yielded to the civilizing influence of Christianity, they still cherished their old beliefs in the gods of nature and offered sacrifices to spirits dwelling in groves and fountains. The chief object of their worship was a huge tree trunk that they kept hidden in the heart of a forest, their priests declaring that the whole heavens rested upon it. This ermensul, or all-supporting pillar, was the bond between one group of Saxons and another that led them to rally round their chiefs when any foreign army appeared on their soil. Though, if at peace with the rest of the world, they would fight amongst themselves for sheer love of battle. A part of the Saxon race had settled in the island of Britain when the Roman authority weakened at the break-up of the empire and amongst the descendants of these settlers were some Christian priests who determined to carry the gospel to the heathen tribes of Germany, men and women of their own race, but still living in spiritual darkness. The most famous of these missionaries was St. Winifrith, or St. Boniface, according to the Latin version of his name. It means, he who brings peace. About the time that Charles Martel was Duke of the Franks, Boniface arrived in Germany and began to travel from one part of the country to the other, explaining the gospel of Christ and persuading those whom he converted to build churches and monasteries. When he went to Rome to give an account of his work, the Pope made him a bishop and sent him to preach in the Duchy of Bavaria. Later, as his influence increased and he gathered disciples around him, he was able to found not only parish churches but bishoprics, with a central archbishopric at mine. Thus, long before Germany became a nation, she possessed a church with an organized government that belonged not to one, but to all of her provinces. Only in the north and far east of Germany, heathenism still held sway, and St. Boniface, after he had gone at the Pope's wish to help the Franks reform their church, determined to make one last effort to complete his missionary work in the land he had chosen as his own. 
He was now sixty-five, but nothing daunted by the hardships and dangers of the task before him, he set off with a few disciples to Friesland and began to preach to the wild pagan tribes who lived there. Before he could gain a hearing, however, he was attacked and, refusing to defend himself, was put to death. Thus passed away the Apostle of Germany, and with him much of the kindliness of his message. Christianity was to come indeed to these northern tribes, but through violence and the sword, rather than by the influence of a gentle life. Charlemagne had a sincere love of the Catholic faith, whose champion he believed himself, but he considered that only folly and obstinacy could blind men's eyes to the truth of Christianity, and he was determined to enforce its doctrines, by the sword if necessary. The Saxons, on the other hand, though if they were beaten in battle they might yield for a time and might promise to pay tribute to the Franks and build churches, remained heathens at heart. When an opportunity occurred, and they learned that the greater part of the Frankish army was in Italy or on the Spanish border, they would sally forth across their boundaries and drive out or kill the missionaries. Charlemagne knew that he could have no peace within his empire until he had subdued the Saxons. But the task he had set himself was harder than he had imagined, and it was thirty-eight years before he could claim that he had succeeded. The final conquest of the Saxons, says Egenhard, a scholar who lived at Charlemagne's court and wrote his life, would have been accomplished sooner but for their treachery. It is hard to tell how often they broke faith, surrendering to the king and accepting his terms, and then breaking out into wild rebellion once more. Egenhard continues that Charlemagne's method was never to allow a revolt to remain unpunished, but to set out at once with an army and exact vengeance. On one of these campaigns, he succeeded in reaching the forest where the sacred trunk Ermensul was kept, and set fire to it and destroyed it. But the Saxons, though disheartened for the moment, soon rallied under the banner of a famous chief called Wittekind. We know little of the latter except his undaunted courage that made him refuse for many years to submit to a foe so much stronger that he must obviously gain the final victory. Charlemagne, exasperated by the repeated opposition, used every means to forward his aim. Sometimes he would bribe separate chieftains to betray their side, but often he would employ methods of deliberate cruelty in order to strike terror into his foes. 4,500 Saxons who had started a rebellion were once cut off and captured by the Franks. They pleaded that Wittekind, who had escaped into Denmark, had prompted them to act against their better judgment. If Wittekind is not here, you must pay the penalty in his stead, returned the king relentlessly, and the whole number were put to the sword. At different times he transplanted hundreds of Saxman households into the heart of France, and in the place of this great multitude, as the chronicle describes them, he established Frankish garrisons. He also sent missionaries to build churches in the conquered territories and compel the inhabitants to become Christians. Often the bishops and priests thus sent would have to fly before a sudden raid of heathen Saxons hiding in the neighboring forests and marshes, and lacking the courage of St. Boniface. A few would hesitate to return when the danger was suppressed. 
what ought i to do cried one of the most timid appealing to charlemagne in christ's name go back to thy diocese was the stern answer while the king expected the same obedience and devotion from church officials as from captains in his army he took care that they should not lack his support in the work he had set them to do if any man among the saxons being not yet baptized shall hide himself and refuse to come to baptism let him die the death if any man despise the lenten feast for contempt of christianity let him die the death let all men whether nobles free or serfs give to the churches and the priests the tenth part of their substance and labor these capitularies or laws show that charlemagne was still half a barbarian at heart and matched pagan savagery with a severity more ruthless because it was more calculating in the end Wittekind himself in spite of his courage was forced to surrender and accept baptism and gradually the whole of saxony fell under the frankish yoke the duchy of bavaria that had been christian for many years did not offer nearly so stubborn a resistance and after he had reduced both it and saxony to submission charlemagne was ruler not merely in name but in reality of an empire that included france the modern holland and belgium germany and the greater part of italy some of the conquests he had made were to fall away but germany that had suffered most at his hands emerged in the end the greatest achievement of his foreign wars he swept away the black deceitful night and taught our race to know the only light wrote a saxon monk of the ninth century showing that already some of the bitterness had vanished in a few generations says a modern writer the saxons were conspicuous for their loyalty to the faith no story of charlemagne would be true to life that admitted his harsh dealings with his saxon foe and yet it would be equally unfair to paint him as only a warrior mercilessly exterminating all who opposed him in barbaric fashion far more than a conqueror he was an empire builder to whom war was not an end in itself as it was to his frankish forefathers but a means toward the safeguarding of his realm the forts and outworks that he planted along his boundaries the churches that he built in the midst of hostile territory belonged indeed to his policy of inspiring terror and awe but charlemagne had also other designs only in part of a military nature roads and bridges that should make a network of communication across the empire acting like channels of civilization in assisting transport and encouraging trade and intercourse royal palaces that should become centers of justice for the surrounding country monasteries that should shed the light of knowledge and of faith all of these form part of his dream of a roman empire brought back to her old stately life and power a canal joining the rhine and danube and thus making a continuous waterway between east and west was planned and even begun but it had to wait till modern times for its completion charlemagne possessed the vision and enterprise that did not quail before big undertakings but he lacked the money and labor necessary for carrying them out unlike the roman emperors of classic times he had no treasury on whose taxes he could draw but depended save for certain rents on the revenues of his private estates that were usually paid in kind that is to say not in coin 
but the rate of so many head of cattle or so much milk corn or barley according to the means of the tenant of these supplies he kept a careful account even to the number of hens on the royal farms and the quantity of eggs that they laid yet at their greatest extent revenues in kind could do little more than satisfy the daily needs of the palace the chief debt that the frankish nation owed to the state was not financial but military the obligation of service in the field laid on every freeman as the empire increased in size this became so irksome that the system was somewhat modified in future men who possessed less than a certain quantity of land might join together and pay one or two of their number according to the size of their joint properties to represent them in the army abroad while the rest remained at home to see to the cultivation of the crops charlemagne was very anxious to raise a body of laborers from each district to assist in his building schemes but this suggestion awoke a storm of indignation landowners maintained that they were only required by law to repair the roads and bridges in their own neighborhood not to put their tenants at the disposal of the emperor that he might send them at his whim from aquitaine to bavaria or from austria to lombardy and in the face of this opposition many of his designs ceased abruptly from lack of labor a royal palace and cathedral adorned with columns and mosaics from ravenna were however completed at aachen and here charlemagne established his principal residence and gathered his court around him the life of this new rome as he loved to call it was simple in the extreme for the emperor like a true frank hated unnecessary ostentation and ceremony when the chief nobles and officials assembled twice a year in the spring and autumn to debate on public matters he would receive them in person thanking them for the gifts they had brought him and walking up and down amongst them to jest with one and ask questions of another with an informality that would have scandalized the court at constantinople in this easy intercourse between sovereign and subject lay the secret of charlemagne's personal magnetism to warriors and churchmen as to officials and the ordinary freemen of his domains he was not some far-removed authority who could be approached only through a maze of court intrigue but a man like themselves with virtues and failings they could understand if his temper was hasty and terrible when roused it would soon melt away into a genial humor that appreciated to the full the rough practical jokes in which the age delighted the chronicles tell us with much satisfaction how charlemagne once persuaded a jew to offer a vainglorious bishop ever fond of vanities a painted mouse that he pretended he had brought back straight from judea the bishop at first declined to give more than three pounds for such a treasure but deceived by the jews prompt refusal to part with it for so paltry a sum consented at length to hand over a bushel of silver in exchange the emperor hearing this gathered the rest of the bishops at his court together see what one of you has paid for a mouse he exclaimed gleefully and we may be sure that the story did not stop at the royal presence but spread throughout the country where haughty ecclesiastics were looked on with little favor we are told that charlemagne loved to bombard the people he met from the pope downwards with difficult questions but it was not merely a malicious desire to bring them to confusion that prompted his inquiries 
alert himself and keenly interested in whatever business he had in hand he despised slipshod or inefficient knowledge he expected a bishop to be an authority on theology an official to be an expert on methods of government a scholar to be well grounded in the ordinary sciences of his day hard work was the surest road to his favor and he spared neither himself nor those who entered his service even at night he would place writing materials beneath his pillow that if he woke or thought of anything it might be noted down on one occasion he visited the palace school that he had founded and discovered that while boys of humble birth were making the most of their opportunities the sons of the nobles despising book learning had frittered away their time commending those who had done well the emperor turned to the others with an angry frown relying on your birth and wealth he exclaimed and caring nothing for our commands and your own improvement you have neglected the study of letters and have indulged yourself in pleasures and idleness by the king of heaven i care little for your noble birth know this unless straightway you make up for your former negligence by earnest study you need never expect any favor from the hand of charles it was with the wealthy nobles and landowners that charlemagne fought some of his hardest battles though no sword was drawn or open war declared not only were most of the high offices at court in their hands but it was from their ranks that the counts and later the viscounts were chosen who ruled over the districts into which the empire was divided and subdivided the count received a third of the gifts and rents from his province that would otherwise have been paid to the king and these if he were unscrupulous he could increase at the expense of those he governed he presided in the local law courts and was responsible for the administration of justice the exaction of fines and for the building of roads and bridges he was in fact a petty king and would often tyrannize over the people and neglect their royal interests to forward his selfish ambitions the merovingians had tried to limit the authority of the counts and other provincial officials by occasionally sending private agents of their own to inquire into the state of the provinces and to reform the abuses that they found charlemagne adopted this practice as a regular system and at the annual assemblies he appointed missi or messengers who should take a tour of inspection in the district to which they had been sent at least four times in the year and afterwards report on their progress to the emperor wherever they went the count or viscount must yield up his authority to them for the time being allowing them to sit in his court and hear all the grievances and complaints that the men and women of the district cared to bring forward if the missi insisted on certain reforms the count must carry them out and also make atonement for any charges proved against him here are some of the evils that the men of istria a province on the eastern adriatic suffered at the hands of their lord johannes and that the inquiries of the royal missi at length brought to light johannes had sold the people on his estates as serfs to his sons and daughters he had forced them to build houses for his family and to go on voyages on his business across the sea to venice and ravenna he had seized the common land and used it as his own bringing in slavs from across the border to till it for his private use he had robbed his tenants of their horses and their money on the plea of the emperor's service and had given them nothing in exchange if the emperor will help us they cried we may be saved 
but if not, we had better die than live. From this account, we can see that Charlemagne appeared to the mass of his subjects as their champion against the tyranny of the nobles, and in this sense his government may be called popular. But the old popular assemblies of the Franks, at which the laws were made, had ceased by this reign to be anything but aristocratic gatherings summoned to approve the measures laid before them. The emperor's capitularies would be based on the advice he had received from his most trusted missy, and when they had been discussed by the principal nobles, they would be read to the general assembly and ratified by a formal acceptance that meant nothing because it rarely or never changed into a refusal. Besides introducing new legislation in the form of royal edicts or capitularies, Charlemagne commanded that a collection should be made of all the old tribal laws, such as the Salic law of the Franks, and of the chief codes that had been handed down by tradition or word of mouth for generations, and this compilation was revised and brought up to date. It was a very useful and necessary piece of work, and yet Charlemagne, for all his industry, does not deserve to be ranked as a great lawgiver like Justinian. The very earnestness of his desire to secure immediate justice made his capitularies hasty and inadequate. He would not wait to trace some evil to its root and then try to eradicate it, but would pass a number of laws on the matter, only touching the surface of what was wrong and creating confusion by the multiplicity of instructions and the contradictions they contained. Sometimes the missy themselves were not a success, but would take bribes from the rich landowners on their tour of inspection, and this would mean more government machinery and fresh laws to bring them under the royal control in their turn. If it was difficult to make wise laws, it was even harder in that rough age to carry them out, for the nobles found it to their interest to defy or at least hinder an authority that struck at their power, while the mass of the people were too ignorant to bear responsibility and few, save those educated in palace schools, could become trustworthy counts or royal agents. Dimly, however, the nation understood that the emperor held some high ideal of government, planned for their prosperity. No one cried out to him, says the chronicle, but straightway he should have good justice. And in every church throughout France, those who had not been called to follow him to battle prayed for his safety and that God would subdue the barbarians before his triumphant arms. To Charlemagne, there was a higher vision than that of mere victory in battle, a vision born of his favorite book, The Savitas Day, wherein St. Augustine had described the perfect emperor, holding his scepter as a gift God had given and might take away, and conquering his enemies that he might lead them to a greater knowledge and prosperity. Charlemagne believed that to him had been entrusted the guardianship of the Catholic Church, not only from the heathen without its pale, but from false doctrine and evil living within. To the Pope, as Christ's vice-regent, he bore himself humbly, as on the day when he had climbed St. Peter's steps on his knees. But to the Pope as a man dealing with other men, he spoke as a lord to his vassal, tendering his views and expecting compliance, in return for which he guaranteed the support of his sword. May the ruler of the church be rightly ruled by thee, O king, and mayest thou be ruled by the right hand of the Almighty. In this prayer, Alcuin probably expressed the emperor's opinion of his own position, 
Leo III, on the other hand, preferred to talk of his champion as a faithful son of the Mother Church of Rome, thereby implying that the emperor should pay a son's duty of obedience. But he himself was never in a strong enough position to enforce this point of view, and the clash of empire and papacy was left for a later age. Within his own dominions, Charlemagne, like the Frankish kings before him, reigned supreme over the church, appointing whom he would as bishops, and using them often as missi to assist him in his government. Yet the church remained in a state, apart from the rest of the nation, supported by the revenues of the large sees belonging to the different bishoprics, and by the tithe, or tenth part, of the layman's income. When churchmen attended the annual assembly, they were allowed to deliberate apart from the nobles and freemen. When a bishop excommunicated some heretic or sinner, the emperor's court was bound to enforce the sentence. Thus, the privileges and rights were many, but Charlemagne determined that the men who enjoyed them must also fulfill the obligations that they carried with them. In earlier years, Charles Martel and St. Boniface had struggled hard to raise the character of the Frankish church, and Charlemagne continued their task with his usual energy, insisting on frequent inspections of the monasteries and convents, and on the maintenance of a stricter rule of life within their walls. The ordinary parish clergy were also brought under more vigilant supervision. In accordance with the laws of the Roman church, they were not allowed to marry, nor might they take part in any worldly business, enter a tavern, carry arms, or go on hunting or hawking. Above all, they were encouraged to educate themselves that they might be able to teach their parishioners and set a good example. Good works are better than knowledge, wrote Charlemagne to his bishops and abbots in a letter of advice, but without knowledge, good works are impossible. In accordance with this view, he commanded that a school should be established in every diocese, in order that the boys of the neighborhood might receive a grounding in the ordinary education of their day. His own court became a center of learning, for he himself was keenly interested in all branches of knowledge, from a close study of the scriptures to mathematics or tales of distant lands. Histories he liked to have read out to him at meals. Egenhard, his biographer, tells us that he never learned to write, but that he was proficient in Latin and could understand Greek. It was his desire to emulate Augustus, the first of the Roman emperors, and gather around him the most literary men of Europe, and he eagerly welcomed foreign scholars and took them into his service. Chief amongst these adopted sons of the empire was Alcuin the Northumbrian, a wanderer on the face of the earth, as he called himself, whom Danish invasions had driven from his native land. Alcuin settled at the Frankish court, organized the palace school of which we have already made mention, and himself wrote the primers from which the boys were taught. His influence soon extended beyond this sphere, and he became the emperor's chief advisor, inspiring his master with high ideals, while he himself was stirred by the other's vivid personality to share his passion for hard work. It is this almost volcanic energy that gives the force and charm to Charlemagne's many-sided character. We think of him first, it may be, as the warrior, the hero of romance, or else as a statesman planning his empire of the West. 
at another time we see in him the guardian of his people the king who wills that justice should be done but we recall a story such as that of the painted mouse and instantly his simple almost schoolboy side becomes apparent the great charles was no saint but a frank of the rough type of soldiers he led to battle capable of cruelty as of kindness hot-tempered a lover of sport strong perhaps where his ideals were at stake but weak towards women and an overindulgent father who let the intrigues of his daughters bring scandal on his court yet another contrast to this homely figure is the scholar and theologian the friend of alcuin who believed that without knowledge good works were impossible many famous characters in history have equaled or surpassed charlemagne as general statesman or legislature there have been better scholars and more refined princes but few or none have followed such divers aim and achieved by the sheer force of their personality such memorable results painters and chroniclers love to depict him in an old age still majestic and in truth up till nearly the end of his long reign he kept the fire and vigor of his youth swimming like a boy in the baths of Aachen, or hunting the wild boar upon the hills drawing up capitularies or dictating advice to his bishops doing in fact whatever came to hand with an intensity that would have exhausted anyone less healthy and self-reliant fortunately for charlemagne he had the sturdy constitution of his race and when at last he died an old man in eight fourteen people believed that he did not share the common fate of humanity nearly two hundred years later it was said when the funeral vault was open he was found seated in his chair of state firm of flesh as in life with his crown on his snowy hair and his sword clasped in his hand our lord gave this boon to charlemagne that men should speak of him as long as the world endureth it is a boast that as centuries passed sweeping away the memory of lesser heroes time still justifies End of chapter 8